Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Well, today we come to the end of the epistle to the Hebrews, and and I went back, and uh, this is actually 85 messages, 85 weeks, more than that in terms of total weeks, but 85 of our weeks in the epistle to the Hebrews. And it's always hard to come to an end, certainly something like this, and it's, it's hard for me in some ways to wrap it up. I keep feeling like there's more that could be said, more that should be said. But as we come to these last few verses of Hebrews 13, once again, it's, it's very easy having gotten through uh, maybe what we would consider to be the meat and the potatoes of the epistle to just kind of treat all this as a kind of a throwaway at the end. But I don't believe the writer saw this as a throwaway, and I hope that it will, in, in the way that I believe he intended, become a capstone for us. Not just a, a falling off the, the, to the side, but a capstone that brings all of this together, and I pray that that will be the case for us today. Well, read with with me then, and I'll back up to verse 18, but specifically we're going to be considering verses uh, 22 through 25. But the writer says, pray for us, for we are sure, we are persuaded that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably or with integrity in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, to pray for us, that I may be restored to you the sooner. And now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, even Jesus our Lord. May God equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus the Messiah, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. Greet all of your leaders, all of the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. So as I said, the writer, as he brings this to an end, I think that that there is a, a kind of capstone in all of this. And before he gets to his closing greetings and and the final benediction of verse 25 he makes his final petition to them he makes one last final petition to them that they would bear with what he calls this brief word of exhortation and and I know when I taught through this book many many years ago it struck me then but it struck me again in thinking about it this week how Again, 85 weeks in the book of Hebrews, and and there was so much more that could have been said for sure. And yet the writer treated this, he viewed what he wrote as a brief word of exhortation. 
And I think it does underscore again how he viewed this letter as he sat down and penned it. He didn't say, I'm sitting down and writing what will become Holy Scripture. He was writing a letter to people that he loved dearly and that he was deeply concerned for. Brothers and sisters in Christ that he longed to see persevere in the faith. He longed to see them grow and become strong and rooted and grounded in their faith. He wrote to them as a pastor. He wrote to them as a brother, a fellow Jew, a Hebrew who had also come to find in Jesus of Nazareth the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah of Israel. And he wanted them to hold on to that. What the epistle does is show us how everything associated with Israel's identity, Israel's life, the structures of Israel's life, the covenants, all of the things that defined Israel as the people of God and their relationship with him, all of that had reached its climax and fulfillment in Jesus himself and the work that he had accomplished. And what that meant for them is that they could not return to Judaism in any sense. There was no Judaism no Mosaic Judaism or Mosaic Torah in that sense to return to. All of that, all that had defined and prescribed Israel's life, the life of even these Jewish individuals, had now become yes and amen in Jesus. And so to deviate from him in any way, to depart or stray from him, was to, in effect, walk away from so great a salvation to fail to even listen to the scriptures, as Paul said, which were building the case for preparing for the coming of the Messiah and the work that he would accomplish. So that was his heart in this. And what we see is this very thorough, deep, intricate treatment of the doctrine of Christ in relation to all of these things were a part of Israel's life and its relationship with God. That's what he's doing. He understood that there continuance, their steadfastness depended on getting it right, holding fast to Jesus, growing in him. And in that way, they would not stray. They would continue on. So he's presented them with all of this content, recognizing again the things that are pressing them, even their own countrymen, all the cultural things, the things that are coming against them. And those issues were uniquely Jewish. We as Gentiles don't face those same challenges, but we have our own challenges to consistency, to constancy, to perseverance. In their case, they had centuries of rabbinical tradition that had taught them to expect the Messiah in a certain way, to read the scriptures in a certain way, to understand Israel's life, Israel's destiny in a certain way. And they even had the challenge of the scriptures themselves, Because even though God, through his prophets, through the recorded scriptures, had built the case for the Messiah and the work that he would do, there was a kind of lack of clarity. There was a lack of completeness in that disclosure. And it would only be Jesus' coming that would allow them to see exactly how all of the law, the prophets, and the writings testified of him. But that's what he's doing, is unfolding it in that sort of a way that they would come to see more clearly and that they would hold tightly 
to this one that they had embraced. And as I say, we as Gentile believers don't have those same challenges, but we do have challenges. Things that would cause us to question, things that would cause us to doubt, things that would cause us to stray. The obligation holds for us as well to hold fast. We have our own points of stumbling, and we need to also hold fast to the Jesus presented in this particular scripture. So he says, bear with this brief word of exhortation. And again, even though we've spent this many weeks, uh, many, many weeks in the epistle to the Hebrews, it was written as a letter to be read and, and, and in a sense ingested at one sitting. And so I just want to encourage us as we move on from Hebrews to continue to try to saturate yourself in this epistle. And it's not that it's wrong to study it or deal with the details, but, but even in general with the scriptures and certainly with the epistles, to read them and hold them together and become familiar with them in a way that is more organic and more holistic. Far better than memorizing verses or whatever is to understand the writer's larger thought and his argument. And I pray that we will hold to this epistle in that way. A brief word of exhortation, encouragement, nurturing unto steadfastness in faith. Well, with that, I want to then just deal with the, the balance of this in terms of the two pieces that he has here. This thing, his greetings that he issues, and then focus primarily on this benediction at the end. A benediction is a blessing. That's the idea of a benediction. Well, the writer first mentions the release of Timothy, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but as I've said before, that's one of the reasons that uh, people have believed that Paul perhaps penned this epistle. We know that, well, there's only one Timothy that we know of in the New Testament, and the assumption is that it's that same Timothy that ministered with Paul. Timothy was a man that Paul met on his second missionary journey. He was uh, from Lystra. His mother was a Jew. His father was a Greek. Uh, but his mother was a believer. And Paul picked him up in, in Lystra and took him on his second missionary journey. And then he continued to minister with Paul and on Paul's behalf uh, throughout the rest of Paul's life. And the writer mentions Timothy, our brother Timothy. And so clearly these Hebrews knew Timothy, knew him as a fellow believer. Now that doesn't in itself mean that Paul wrote the epistle. And as you know, I don't believe Paul did pen this epistle. But these Hebrew Christians were a part of that same circle of ministration. They knew Timothy. And we don't know the circumstances of Timothy's release. Uh, a common view is that Timothy had been incarcerated. Paul says he's been released somewhere. Uh, the, the writer says somewhere, you know, that he's been released somewhere near here. If he gets here soon enough, I'll bring him with me when I come to you. That's his longing. We don't know if he was incarcerated. This term uh, it, it, that's rendered, he's been released, has all sorts of different uh, it's a very broad semantic range. It can even be setting someone apart for ministry. Loose for me, uh, Paul and Barnabas, for the work of the ministry you see in the book of Acts. 
that same sort of idea. So we don't know for sure, but it is likely in my mind that Timothy had been incarcerated. He was close with Paul. He traveled with Paul. We know how many times Paul was jailed for the sake of the gospel. And in that world at that time, it's very unlikely that anyone who was at the center of the early gospel witness would not find himself uh, uh, at cross purposes with the governing authorities at some point in time. So we don't really know. But I just simply wanted to point out the fact that these Hebrew believers do know Timothy. And the writer is intending to bring him with him, if he can, as a point of ministry to them. Well, in terms of the greeting itself, as Mark mentioned, he says, greet your leaders and all the saints there. All the saints. He doesn't do what Paul does, at least on occasion. Greetings at the end of epistles is very characteristic of the New Testament, right? There's greetings typically at the end. At least in Romans, Paul names a whole bunch of people. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. The writer doesn't do that. He just says, your leaders and all the saints. And some have thought, well, maybe he doesn't even know these people that well. But I think the epistle shows how well he knew these Hebrews and the intimacy that he had with them. Because he writes to them with a kind of familiarity and even the kind of intensity that would not be what you would expect with strangers speaking to people, even if it's, you know, as a Christian to a fellow Christian. But he says, greet your leaders and all the saints there with you. I think we all know what saints refers to. It's the term holy ones. And it's a scriptural term for those who are Christ's own. Those who are God's people set apart to him in the Messiah. Greet the holy ones there with you. The other thing that he says is those from Italy greet you. Once again, we don't really know. Whenever we read epistles, we're reading somebody else's mail, right? This isn't written to us. Obviously, the Hebrews would have understood what he was getting at. But there are different views of this. One is that he's actually writing this epistle to Jewish believers that are in Italy. And he's saying, your Italian brothers that are here with us greet you. People that you know, brothers in Christ who are also Italians but happen to be here with us, uh, your brothers from Italy that are here with us greet you. Um, others believe that, that he's writing as he's writing from Italy. The writer is writing from Italy. And so he's saying the brothers that are Italians here in Italy where we are send you their greetings. But again, there's a kind of global quality to this. You know, he doesn't identify the individual members of this community. It's probably a fairly large community of believers that he's writing to. It's what's called a Catholic epistle. We don't like that word. We think Roman Catholic. But Catholic means universal. And the Catholic epistles are ones that aren't written to a specific group, like to the church at Colossae, to the church at Philippi. This is a Catholic epistle. It was intended to have a wide distribution. And I think that's part of the reason why he doesn't name individuals. But it gives you the flavor of, again, the body of Christ as wider than simply a little narrow group. 
And already by this point, you have believers associated with Italy. It took a while for the gospel to get to Rome, but the gospel has gone there. And God is building his church throughout the Roman world. Well, that's really all I wanted to say about that. There's, there's more that could be said. But, but again, the flavor that the writer has and the way that he deals with very specific things related to Jesus himself, but to a very wide audience. All of these saints, all of their leaders, all of them need to understand and, and live out their faith in the way that he's exhorted here. And finally, then he ends with this benediction, grace be with you all. This sort of a benediction is consistent with all of Paul's epistles. And also, if, if it catches your eye, the parting words, the final words of the book of Revelation. The very end of the Revelation, Revelation 22, grace be with you all. It's the way in which Paul, in some form, some related form, ends all of his epistles. And what that tells me is that this pattern, this pattern of of benediction, was a common blessing used in the early church. It had become a way in which the saints, in a sense, greeted each other. You see Paul speaking this way at the beginning of his epistles, but certainly at the end of his epistles. Grace be with you. Interestingly, this greeting in this way is not found in the, in the Gospels, and it's not found in the Old Testament. It's a church greeting. It's something that became a part of of the church's history. To me, there's an echo of it in what we often refer to as the Aaronic benediction or the blessing that God told Moses to instruct Aaron and his sons to pronounce on the sons of Israel. In Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was the blessing that God said, instruct Aaron and his sons to bless the sons of Israel with this. And so there's a kind of preparatory echo in that. Israel was the covenant people, the people of God, and they were to understand their relationship with God mediated through the priests in terms of this graciousness of God. The graciousness of God. But if this was, in fact, a key benediction, a key way in which the early Christians greeted one another and, in a sense, communicated with one another, then it's important to understand this idea of grace. Like so many terms, uh, it's a part of our Christian vernacular, but we don't often stop and think about what it really means. And I think that it's important that we do that. It's like the word gospel. Everybody knows the word gospel, but if you ask people what is the gospel, you may hear a whole bunch of different things. Grace is very much a part of our Christian vocabulary. What do we mean by it? What does the scripture mean by it, most importantly? 
If you ask most Christians, or at least in my experience, define grace, generally what you get is this answer. It's unmerited favor. That's kind of the general way that it's defined. And it's not whole cloth wrong, but it tends to be viewed in terms of this idea of how a person gets saved. So, you know, we all know the formula salvation by grace through faith. And even this, this antithesis that's so common in the, in the contemporary church of, of uh, grace versus works. Is this of works or is this of grace? Is this law or is this grace? And so we tend to think of grace as one option for how this thing of salvation can work. But we connected very tightly with the idea of getting saved. Are we saved by our works or are we saved by grace? What do you mean by grace? Unmerited favor. God saves me versus I save myself. And that's just overly simplistic. And I think it strips the idea of really the richness that the scripture intends. As a scriptural concept, grace does denote this idea of favor, but favorableness, both as a personal quality, often rendered as gracious. God is gracious. People are gracious. It's a personal quality, but it's also a disposition of one person towards another. It's a disposition. It's a way of conducting oneself. So the term inherently, now I'm not talking about connotation, but the term inherently has no salvific meaning as such. Grace does not refer to how do you get saved versus not get saved. It has no inherent salvific connotation. And certainly that's, you see that in the Old Testament where the idea is really finding favor or granting favor. So you see Laban saying to Jacob, if I found favor in your sight, if I found grace in your sight. And Jacob, even with respect to Esau, sending him an offering in order that he might find grace in Esau's sight, that Esau might be favorable towards him. You see it in the book of Exodus where God says, I'm going to cause the, the Egyptians to be gracious towards you. They will be gracious towards you. I, they will have favor on you so that when I lead you out, they will give you possessions. And that way you will plunder the Egyptians. I've often said, you know, where did Israel get all of the materials that they used to build the sanctuary in the wilderness? Where did they find all of the cloth and the gold and the materials that they used in the middle of the howling wilderness of Sinai? Where did they find all that stuff to build the sanctuary? Well, they took it all from Egypt. God's house was built with the wealth of the nations, and that's an important principle, right, that comes out later in the prophets. But the point is, is that God said the Egyptians will be favorable towards you. That has nothing to do with, through the Egyptians, I'm going to save you. This is how you'll get saved. And it's even used, as I said, in, in terms of a kind of winsomeness or a charm in a person. You know, the, the Proverbs refer to the woman who is gracious, graciousness, a gracious person. That's the same idea. So it's a disposition as well as also a quality. 
Now, the connotation of of salvation or a deliverance, a salvific sort of idea, was again hinted at in the Old Testament in terms of God's relationship with Israel. I already mentioned that idea of the Aaronic benediction. Israel was to think of their relationship with God as a matter of God's favor towards them, his graciousness towards them. And if you remember, after they built the the golden calf, and Moses intercedes. God says, you know, this is it. He, Moses throws down the tablets. He comes down off the mountain. And God says, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses pleads with him. And he says, don't do this. Remember your covenant. Remember, remember what you have put out in front of the nations for your own sake, for your own faithfulness sake. Don't do this. And he pleads with God. God says, you have found favor with me, Moses. Therefore, I will go up with you. I I will do this. I will stay with you, but in the person of my angel. If I go up with the people, I'll destroy them. I'll send my angel to lead them. But you found favor with me. And Moses says, if I found favor with you, then show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And here's what he says. This is in Exodus chapter 33. I will do this thing, God says to Moses, I will do this thing which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight. I have known you by name. God says, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. But you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And when God passes in front of him, he descends, this is now chapter 34, he descends in the cloud, stands there as he called upon the name of Yahweh, and Yahweh passed by in front of Moses, and here's how God showed his glory, his goodness, proclaimed his name to Moses. Yahweh, Yahweh who is God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in covenant faithfulness, loving kindness, and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on children and their grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That's how God declares his name to Moses. And that self-description or that self-disclosure becomes woven into Israel's confession of God and Israel's confidence in God throughout her history. You see this confession spoken throughout the Old Testament scriptures. God, you are this sort of a God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, gracious, compassionate. We're calling on you because of your name, because of how you've revealed yourself to be faithful. So that principle of graciousness at the center of the relationship between God and the Abrahamic people is very much a part of the Old Testament. But grace in relation to this thing we call salvation comes really into the picture in the New Testament and not in the Gospels. But it really emerges in the book of Acts, and then it becomes very common throughout the epistles. And my point is is that this is something, this graciousness of God, 
the way in which grace stands at the center of his covenant and his fidelity, his faithfulness, becomes in through the Christ event, it becomes now the centerpiece of how this new Christian community understands their own salvation, their own relationship with God. Grace in the New Testament, as, as I say, as it's introduced and you see it now in this salvific sense, it's treated as God's loving, restorative disposition towards his creation that has man and so Israel itself. Remember, this confession was Israel's life with God. But Israel's own destiny is bound up in the Messiah, Right? This graciousness that constituted Israel, that related Israel to God himself. Now that becomes yes and amen in Jesus himself. The one out of Israel through whom the grace of God becomes manifest. But this idea of grace in the New Testament sense is God's loving restorative disposition towards his creation. The disposition that he manifested that he revealed and that he has exercised in relation to the person and the work of Jesus himself. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not take this grace of God in vain. The grace of God is bound up in the person and the work of Christ. Another very familiar passage in Ephesians chapter 1. The writer says, Blessed be the God and Father, Paul says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus the Messiah to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The grace of God that is in the beloved and through which now God is working out his kind intention unto the end that he will sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus himself. And then you see the same thing in chapter 2. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, we all, we've all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by our own nature children of wrath as the rest. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There's where we see grace and salvation coming together. But he raised us up in him, seated us in him, that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness to us. Grace in his kindness that is in Christ Jesus. It's by that grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is unto your creation in Christ Jesus. You are his workmanship, 
unto the works, the good works, the works of new creation that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The point is, is that grace is this kind, favorable design and intent and disposition of God towards his creation, which becomes localized in Jesus himself and what it is that he does. Paul goes on in Titus to say, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us. How has the grace of God appeared in Jesus? He is the grace of God. He is that intent of God. Grace has a very specific meaning. Again, in the Old Testament, it was beginning to develop this idea of the way in which the relationship between God and the, the covenant household is understood is the graciousness of God. That was Israel's confession. And now that thing that bound Israel to God has, been bound, has come in the Messiah himself. That's how the grace of God works. That's how it's to be understood. So there are two aspects then to this idea of grace in the New Testament sense. The intent of God, the disposition of God to show himself favorable towards his creation to restore and renew it and gather it up in himself. And then the second piece of that is the actual outworking or accomplishing of that disposition or intent that has its substance in Jesus himself. The intent of God and then the way in which God brings to fruition that intent. And so the idea of saving grace, this is why I mentioned the way we connect grace and salvation. When we talk about salvation generally, and again, anytime you speak in generalities, you say too much or too little, but we tend to think of salvation in terms of the saving event. Are you saved? Are you not saved? How did you get saved? Was it by the grace of God? Was it by works? Was it by both of them together? We think of salvation in terms of that saving event. But the scripture understands this idea of grace in terms of the accomplishing of God's gracious intent, which isn't just that thing we call getting saved, but the conforming of human beings to the likeness of the Son and ultimately the transforming of the whole creation in relation to him. Saving grace, or the grace that the New Testament talks about, is more concerned with this idea of conformity to Christ than simply this saving event of the day that we got saved, the day we came to Jesus, however we want to define that. And that's the premise behind this New Testament common benediction, grace to you, or grace be with you all. You see, if, if this idea of grace is really about how do we get saved, as opposed to works, it's by God's grace rather than by works, then this benediction really doesn't even make sense going out to all the churches because these epistles are coming to people who are Christians. We're already saved. Why are you saying grace be with us all? You see what I'm saying? And I'm not saying that God's graciousness isn't 
the way in which we get saved. I'm not saying that. I'm, but I'm saying that the idea is really about how it is, what God's intent and disposition are, and how he realizes, works out that disposition that has a completion, consummative quality to it. That's what this grace be with you all is all about. The grace of God that has joined you to himself, may it continue to do its work and have its complete effect. Grace be with you all. If grace defines, if if that idea of grace defines God's disposition and the way in which he relates to his creation with human beings at the center, and this disposition is is now through Christ working itself out towards the summing up of everything in him, then this principle of graciousness is the very thing that defines us and that we hold on to and that is carrying this thing forward, right? So to me, it becomes easy then to see how this kind of benediction, why it marked the early church and why it emerged from within the church. Because this graciousness of God, this intent of God towards his creation, really came to be explicitly revealed in Christ himself and what God accomplished in him. So now those who embrace the Messiah are those who understand and stand in relation to God according to this principle of graciousness or grace in the way in which that was ultimately intended to be all along. They are those who stand by grace. They are those who are defined by grace, characterized by grace. Because grace, again, acknowledges God's loving, ever-faithful intentionality, his intent and his commitment to see his creation fully liberated, fully renewed, fully restored to him, summed up in the Messiah. This kind of a benediction is a, whether we recognize it or not, when we say grace be with you all, we are tacitly acknowledging the God who is faithful. We are acknowledging what he has done, what he is doing, his commitment to be gracious. The grace of God that is in the Messiah will have its perfect work. We're confessing that to one another. We're putting that in front of one another. That graciousness was, was realized in its substance in the Messiah himself. But that first fruits of the triumph of God's grace is now working towards its full completion, right? That was the first fruits. It's the promise of the full renewal that is to come. And so here's the point. That sense of God's intent his disposition, how he's carrying out that disposition, what he's accomplished in Jesus, what we're a part of, what he's doing, all of that determines even our identity as Christians. It defines who we are. It drives how we think. It drives how we live. It drives what we're about. And in that way, we can see the significance and really the precious value of this sort of a benediction. Grace, what grace? The grace of this God who is gracious in the Messiah. That grace be with you. That grace continue with you. That grace nourish you. That grace sustain you. That grace inform you. That grace carry you forward. 
Remember again the writer's goal, and really this is true with all the epistles. They're written to establish and strengthen and, and solidify the saints in the faith. And to end with this sort of a benediction, grace be with you. I think is a very precious thing. And the Hebrews writers, writer had poured himself out with instruction, with exhortation, with warning to try to, again, minister to these saints and to end in this way, he's entrusting them to their faithful father, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, to his triumph, to his triumphal purposes, which will not fail, that they themselves are grafted into. That's what this benediction conveys. And so as we prepare to come to the table, I want to say this really ought to be our benediction to one another. We're not writing epistles. We're not sending out letters. Maybe we do. But we're not writing inscripturated epistles. But this was the heart, whether it was coming from Paul or from Peter or from the Hebrews writer, this was the heart of Christian men to the body of believers, to other Christians. This was their heart. This sort of a blessing. How do we bless one another? How are we a blessing to one another? What do we seek in trying to be a blessing to one another? In our labors, to be a blessing in our labors, in our prayers, in our words to one another. In a very real way, this is the, the perfect way for an epistle like this to end when we understand what really he's getting at. Grace be with you. It's a very concentrated idea. Grace be with you. Who you are, where God has brought you, Whatever your circumstances, whatever your challenges, whatever's threatening your faith, your steadfastness, grace be with you. He who began a good work in you will complete it. We need to encourage one another in that way. We need to try to establish each other in that sort of a way. This is the preciousness of the idea of grace. It's not just a throwaway word that we use to show that we didn't save ourselves. God saved us. This is far more profound than that. This is, in a sense, attesting the very name of God. He's the one who's gracious. God said, I'll tell you my name. I am gracious and compassionate, abounding in loving kindness, slow to anger. That's who I am. We are calling that to one another and encouraging one another in that way. And even as we come to the table, you know, again, these things are very much at the center. This is why we don't come to the table as individual people. We don't take the Lord's table at home. We come together as a body because the table testifies again to this mutuality that we share with one another. We are the children of grace. And that graciousness of God works itself out in the life of the body. Grace be with you all. Well, let's spend a few minutes of uh, contemplation and then we'll, we'll come for the table. And let me pray real quickly as we do that. <clears throat>
Father, I know this was very brief. I know, you know, it maybe seems to not have a lot of uh, substance or content, but I pray that by your spirit, you would challenge each heart, each mind, whether we're distracted, whether we're a million miles away, whether we're troubled, whether we're hurting, all of the things that come against us. We are not suffering as Jewish Christians the way these Hebrew readers were, but we all face peril, challenges, threats to our constancy, our joy in faith, things that would threaten our faithfulness. And I pray, Father, that that you would take these simple ideas and press them into our hearts and our minds, what it is to be the people, the saints, the holy ones who belong to a gracious God. A God who, according to his own eternal counsel, before there even was a creation, a God who was committed to be gracious to his creation. As Paul said, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. A God who doesn't just do gracious things, but a God who is gracious. And that graciousness is what brought the creation into existence. That graciousness is what would not let the creation destroy itself because of human hubris, human violation, human pride, and, and, and departure from the truth. You would not let that go its own way. Your graciousness, your favor toward your creation would see it become all that you intended it to be. All of that bound up in the person of the incarnate Son. This grace that was given us in the Messiah from all eternity. Father, cause this concept of grace to become very profound and very compelling. Strengthening, nurturing, establishing, encouraging in so many ways. We serve a God who is gracious. Our destiny is bound up in a God who is gracious. Our circumstances, our troubles, our trials, all of that is in the hand of a God who is gracious. A God who is working all things according to that eternal determination to sum up everything in the created order, everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus our Lord. And in that day to become all in all. I know I say it all the time, but Father, I pray that these things would drive our hearts and our minds. Familiar truths can become despised truths, cast aside truths. But just as these things only drove Paul harder and harder and and made him all the more zealous and committed to run his race, to finish his course, to keep the faith, I pray that it would be so with us. Let these not be cheap ideas. Let them not be throwaway ideas. Let them not be things that we set aside so we can get on with our day, get on with our lives, throw ourselves back into the midst of our distress, our disheartened circumstance, our disheartened emotions and mindset. Father, make our feet like hinds feet on high places. Our God is gracious. 
And we will prevail because you will prevail. As we prepare to come to the table, bind us together in these truths. Bind us together in this shared grace that is ours in the Messiah. Cause these things to be precious to us. In his name and for his sake. Amen.